This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. This is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. Oh, what is overdue? You nailed it. <laughs> I picked up what you were putting down. Craig, what's it feel like to be part of a uh, trivia game show history? It feels awesome. <laughs> we are uh, associated with uh, the giant killer of, of recent Jeopardy fame. Andrew, mm-hmm. tell our listeners what happened. Do you know how to pronounce her last name? I realized that I should have looked it up, but I didn't. It is Betcher, Emma Betcher. So you know that guy who was winning a lot at Jeopardy, but everyone hated him? He was fine. Jeopardy because James apparently, was because fine. Because apparently knowing how the game works and then coming on and taking advantage of how the game works to win the game is something we're not supposed to do. I don't understand how this is not how every person plays Jeopardy, but apparently he did that too much and so we hated him. And so he was really, really good at it. And then along comes Emma. Uh-huh. Who, with a little help from some podcasters you might know, apparently is winning some games. Yes. Um, she writes, hi, Andrew and Craig. I think I've seen from Craig's Twitter that he watches Jeopardy! Quite exclamation point. So I hope this won't seem too random. I wanted to say thanks for helping me get a Jeopardy! clue right on today's program. I'm one of the contestants tonight. She sent this on. That June is the 5th. most humble flex. <laughs> this is a few days after she defeated James and she just goes, I'm one of the contestants. Well, then she she wanted to say that she got a Jeopardy clue right, but she wanted us to know that she was on Jeopardy and yes. not just at home like getting <laughs> Jeopardy clues right. Truth, truth. Um, I'd worked at a public library where I had to shelve all 115 Wheel of Time books, but having you cover it on Overdue, including Jordan's death and Sanderson's subsequent books in the series, made the recall much easier. And she earned a hot $2,000 thanks to our help. Yeah. Thanks, as always, for a great and informative podcast. I'd say all of our yeah, I'd say all of our podcasts are worth at least $2,000 to everyone listening. Yeah. So you can send us that money, everyone. (laughs) Everyone who has ever known anything because of our show, you owe us. You owe us money. This is a service that we provide, and it only it's only fair for you to chip in. Yes. Also, congratulations, Emma. It was awesome watching the episode where you beat James because you just stole all the double jeopardies from him, and he never had a chance. <laughs> he had to, like, prisoner's dilemma his final Jeopardy bet in the hopes that she would get the answer wrong. It was... It was some pretty cool stuff if you are a fan of Jeopardy. Hmm, which you are. I am. I, I watch it after I watch the 6.30 news because I am 85 Good years Lord. old. <laughs> Can you tell me which soda might be killing me? Like, is that something they still cover on the 6.30 news? Yeah, all of them. And every three months, either eggs or coffee are good slash killing you. Good or bad. Yeah. I thought that wheel was on before Jeopardy. Is wheel no, on wheel is Jeopardy? on after because they Whoa. know you're going to like stretch your intellect for half an hour and then you're just going to like slop around with some letters for another half. <laughs> 
It's a mess. We're Craig and Andrew? Did we say that part? We're Craig and Andrew. I mean, we said that. That was in Emma's email. Oh, sure. Okay. Where um, she said, hi, Andrew and Craig. So this is our book podcast. Yeah. And when we're not expanding minds and filling them up with good, helpful trivia that will help people on Jeopardy, we read books. Mm-hmm. And every week, one of us reads a book that we've never read before. And we tell the other person about it. And we also talk a bit about like authored context yeah. and research and stuff. Craig, what did you read for this week's episode of our book podcast? I read a play, just to keep things interesting. I read Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. Um, It is a play I've seen, but never read, and I've only seen it once. So, like, reading it was still, like, a fresh, interesting experience. It wasn't like I was just like, oh, yeah, I remember that thing I saw. Sure. Um, And Lorraine... Vivian Hansberry was born in 1930. She died in 1965, unfortunately, of pancreatic cancer at a really young age. Yeah, pancreatic cancer is still one of the, like, they're all pretty oh. bad ones, but it's one of the the worst ones, that especially is. if you don't catch it early. Yep. yep. And if, like, a certain iPhone inventor, you'd go in for alternative dumb nonsense medicine instead of going to actual doctors, then you can make your chances of survival a lot worse. So yes. don't do that. Don't do that. Um, what do you know about Lorraine Hansberry, Andrew? Um, I know, so her, her family was, you know, very involved in, in activism. Um, her father, uh, Carl Hansberry was involved in the urban, urban league and NAACP in Chicago. And her family was actually, they were the defendants in the Supreme court case, Hansberry versus Lee. Were they defendants um, or plaintiffs? They were the defendants. I looked it up. Okay. Okay. So my, my understanding of this, of this case, and I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> is um so the the Hansberry family was sold a home in Chicago and based on this racially restrictive covenant which is basically just like a a, a neighborhood homeowners agreement as i understand it mm-hmm. um the surround the the owners of the surrounding homes got that sale voided because they didn't want a black family living next to them because it, because of racism is yeah. the short version, but because yeah. everyone would always freak out about uh, home values going down, but really that was just racism. Yes. Um, but because that agreement, as, as stipulated like under the terms of a cover- covenant, was not signed by 95% of the homeowners covered by it, um, the Hansberry sued. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, a lower court found that this voiding of the agreement was valid based on an older case, but Hansberry versus Lee overturned it by finding that um, one is not bound by the judgment and litigation in which he is not designated as a as a party. So basically, even though this o- other ruling existed, like it doesn't apply to the specific situation because it wasn't like about. <laughs> Yeah, what this is about. It's my very sketchy understanding of it, but uh, yeah, so that's that's a thing. Yes, and I think this directly plays into what we'll talk about happening in the play. Um, it worth noting, worth noting that this stuff is like pre Fair Housing Act and pre Civil Rights Act, um, and they were, as you said, like involved in Chicago politics, um, and I think probably even before this case, but certainly this case, you know, raising. Uh, their profile um i think because the house is like now a national landmark or something Mm -hmm. uh, they had a lot of like uh black thinkers and activists like visiting them regularly 
Yeah, so family, friends, slash acquaintances, including included uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who she also worked with at the Freedom newspaper later after she moved to Harlem in the in the 50s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Langston Hughes, Duke Ellington, Jesse Owens, and a whole bunch of others. Yeah, yeah. Um, she attended the University of Madison, uh, Wisconsin-Madison, and worked on uh, Henry Wallace's 1948 presidential campaign. So he was an early VP of... FDR mm. and then was later booted off the ticket by Truman and some more like conservative <laughs> activists in the, in the party at the time. Cool. And then he ran in 1948 as a member of a progressive party, which was coming at the Democratic Party from the left, advocating uh, racial and gender equality in a national health insurance program, a few, among a few other things. Uh, but it was brought down at the time by accusations of communist sympathies, which in 1948 was a thing that you could not... <laughs> A thing that you could not do in politics. I guess arguably still kind of can't, but everybody calls everything socialism, so it doesn't matter anymore. Just love for history to repeat itself. I just love 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 politics and history and our stupid country so good. It's so great. (laughs) Uh, She moved to New York City from Chicago in 1950 to attend the new school and then moved to Harlem in 1951. Um she, you know, she was prominent in the civil rights movement. She also um, was a gay rights activist. She also... um, protested against uh, colonialism and imperialism all over the world. Yep. Um, she married this Jewish guy, Robert Nemiroff, in 1953, but it is believed, it's strongly believed based on like letters of hers and personal notebooks that she was gay. Yes. Um, so she, sep- she worked with him throughout the rest of her life, and then he was responsible for posthumously publishing some of her plays and manuscripts and stuff. But you know, they separated in '57 and divorced in '64. Yeah, there was um, a there was a Village Voice article from 2014 called "Lorraine Hansberry's Letters Reveal the Playwright's Private Struggle." It was about an exhibition of her work called uh, "Twice Militant." Um, Lorraine Hansberry's Letters to the Ladder, which was the first subscription-based lesbian magazine in the U.S., um, and she had published some essays in there, like under her initials, about her experience, and you know, talking about respectability politics among the gay community through her lens as a black woman. You know, interesting stuff that people should go read about. Um, and then anything about the play that you found, Andrew, that you want to get into? Um, it was the, you know, it was about racial segregation in Chicago. So there's that. Yep. Um, and it when it debuted on Broadway in 1959, it was the first play by a black woman to debut on Broadway. Yeah. Um, she wrote a couple screenplays based on it, but they were both rejected by Columbia Pictures for being too controversial. <laughs> Whoa. Weird. Whoa. Um, and yeah, that's that's basically what I know about the play. I wanted to leave that mostly to to you and to the play itself. Sure, um, but sure. I do have I have the contemporary review from the New York Times, which is very like, it's a good time was had by all oh, kind of really? review. Like, oh no, in well, not you'll see what I mean. In Raisin in the Sun, which opened at the Ethel Barrymore last evening, Lorraine Hansberry touches on some serious problems. No doubt her feelings about them are as strong as anyone's, but she has not tipped her play to prove one thing or another. The play is honest. She's told the inner as well as the outer truth about a Negro family in the South side of Chicago at the present time. Since the performance is also honest. And since Cindy, Sidney Poitier is a candid actor, a Raisin in the Sun has vigor as well as veracity and is likely to destroy the complacency of anyone who sees it. Of anyone who sees it. So it's very, yeah. You see what I mean when I say a good time was had by all? Like, it's very, 
Yes. This is a this is a play about what it is about. And surely it will inspire views. Yes. <laughs> um the the intro to the edition that I have, um, which is the modern library edition, Nemiroff actually wrote an intro to it where he talks about like how long it took the producer to get money to put it on Broadway in the first place. Um he had to do a whole bunch of out of town tours because nobody wanted to take it. Um we'll talk about the things that got cut out of the Broadway production. Uh, for a couple of different reasons, both like whether or not they thought it, audiences were ready for it. Also, could they put a three-hour play by a black woman on Broadway for the first time? Like he says, like people were ready to watch four hours of Eugene O'Neill, but we gotta we gotta pace ourselves if we're gonna do this thing. <sighs> Can we start with like a half hour, <laughs> like <laughs> just a sitcom? Um, so I'll refer back to that a little bit later. And then also, Andrew, just a couple notes on some adaptations and sequel stories. In 1970 or 1961, they made the film with Sidney Poitier and Ruby D and the rest of the original cast. 1973, there was a musical called Raisin. I knew there was a musical, and that seemed like a like a choice. Yeah, it sounds what? like the book is pretty uh, like standard. Like it pretty well follows the play, so I'd be interested if anybody knows about that. In 2004, Andrew, there was a revival starring Sean Puff Daddy Combs. Oh, nice. I think, as I recall, he, like, financed it himself. It also had Audra McDonald and Felicia Rashad, which is pretty dope. I um, guess he's still Diddy, right? Is he Diddy now? I believe he's still Diddy. Okay. I don't know. I know for a while he was changing it just, like, all the time. Yes. But. Uh, there was a 2014 revival with Denzel Washington, which was well-received. And then there have been two kind of, uh, not sequels, because they've been written by other playwrights, but plays that because this has been so well canonized, have like taken it as inspiration. Bruce Norris's Clybourne Park is uh, about the family who sells the house to the family in Raisin in the Sun, um, both before the play and then 50 years after. And then there's a play called Beneath's Place, um, who is one of the characters in the play who goes on to like move to Africa for a period of time and, and is about her. Um, and those have been presented together as like a cycle, which is kind of neat. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, with really only this as, like, the big work that people know, she has had a really, like, outsize effect, um, given her, unfortunately, short career. So, um, I, think that's, I think that's enough to get us started, and let's take a quick break, and I'll tell you the rest. All right, let's do it. Andrew. Craig? I want to sell raisins, but I need to do it online. Do you know of anyone who can help me? <laughs> Luckily, Squarespace does not discriminate. They will let you do a website no matter how stupid your idea is. <laughs> how how can our sponsor this week, Squarespace, help me sell all these raisins I have in my basement? They Squarespace can help you do that by helping you make a beautiful website. Uh, you can showcase your work, blog, or publish content, sell weird raisins and services of all kinds, and promote your physical or online business. They do this by giving you beautiful templates created by world-class designers, powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell raisins online. I assume. I don't know about laws. Maybe there's laws. If it takes off, maybe I'll sell other stuff. But right now, all I have is raisins. So. They've got analytics that will help you grow in real time because this this idea is really going to take off. They've got built-in search engine optimization, free and secure hosting, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. 
Uh, so if you are interested in selling raisins or anything else, maybe not raisins because it sounds like Craig's got that. I've got covered. it on lock. Don't mess up my raisin market. <laughs> you can check out squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch your website, use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That is squarespace.com slash overdue for a free trial and use the offer code overdue to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. A dream's just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. So, you know, with any kind of preserved or dried fruit or food, I'm always wondering, like, where's that line between preserving it and then making it, like, rotten forever? When does it become trash? Yeah, when's it trash? Like, aren't raisins just trash grapes? The answer may surprise you. No, <laughs> they're not. <laughs> Is there a specific process that turns a grape into a raisin? So there, there are different treatments. You'll, you will, you'll note that sun drying, which I think is is usually promoted as the most common form of raisin making, is actually pretty bad because like bugs and stuff get in it. Mm. Ew. So they can like get bugs and rot and stuff. And Do they so get... sun drying, just because sun drying takes so long. Well, when you're sun drying them, you're just putting them out on a table somewhere. Is that the idea? You are kind of doing that, but you're also coating them in a thing that makes them like lose water faster. Like that's the main thing is you're just trying to get the water out of them grapes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so a faster water removal rate, this is from Wikipedia, decreases the rate of browning and helps to produce more desirable raisins. The historical method of completing this process was developed in the Mediterranean and Asia, Asia Minor areas by using a dry emulsion cold dip made of potassium carbonate and ethyl esters of fatty acids. It's, this, that all drip was shown to inc- this drip was shown to increase the rate of water loss by two to three fold. Huh. They probably didn't even know what any of that stuff was. No, they were just like... I don't know what potassium carbonate is. I just know if you put your grapes in this cool liquid, it makes raisins better. Yeah, they probably just called it raisin juice. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Ra- raisin grow, they called it. Steve's uh, raisin juice. Recently, new methods have been developed, such as exposing the grapes to oil emulsions or dilute alkaline solutions. I think I got an oil emulsion when I got a pedicure that time. <laughs> There are so these many methods, food words I still I will never understand. These methods can encourage water transfer to the outer surface of grapes, which helps to increase the efficiency of the drying process. What do they do with the old grape water? Wine? No, it's just water, though. Like, oh. all the flavor is still in the raisin. What huh. do you do with the old grape water? There is a very mm, is a hydrated, lot of there's a very well hydrated old man in every raisin factory who just drinks mm, all of the just drinks grape all water. all the old grape water. Yeah. Boy, I'm learning a lot, but I'm also coming out of this with a lot of questions. Yes. Isn't that the best kind of art, though? So now we've now, now we've had a little bit of fun yep. at the expense of raisins. <laughs> well, it's good that you talked about the raisin-making process, because the, the play takes its title from a poem by Langston Hughes called Harlem, and this is the, the, the part of the poem from that's in the like beginning of this book. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? So I think Langston Hughes has a lot of the same questions we do, except he's asking them about like dreams and whether or not people can have a good life. And we want to just talk about actual raisins. So 
you know, Langston Hughes better than all of us. Um, mm-hmm. The play is, as I believe it's set, uh, I think the notes that I have, it's like, it says post-World War II. It doesn't name a year other than that. Obviously, we know it was, it premiered in 1959, and obviously the stuff that the Hansberries went through was in the late 40s. Um, so it is like distinctly boomer era America, or I guess great generation era America in Chicago, pre-Civil Rights Act. And the younger family is living in Chicago. Uh, and ev- like there's a whole bunch of people that are going to be in this play. So I'm going to run down the dramatist personae because that will keep me from getting like too nitty gritty in like just here's what happens in this scene. That cool. sounds good. Yeah. I'm look. I'm going to look at pictures of raisins. Great. You let me know. While you do this. Okay. But I just you- tell all the people at home. Okay, great. Well... You listen to if you can, if you're not just. I will, but I am. This, the brazen thing is pretty important. Okay, so. great. So there is uh, Ruth, Ruth Younger, who is the wife of Walter Junior. Uh, Walter Younger. Um, Ruth is a domestic worker who's kind of like holding the whole family together. She's in her 30s. She's opens the play like cooking breakfast for people, trying to get them up and get ready for school and work. Um, and she is like, I kind of expected her to drive more of the second half of the play uh, and I was a little surprised that she does not because she is really the one who is like this family is gonna die if I don't hold them together and I have to think about the future for my son okay um, so some of the things that happen with regards to the home like directly impact her so she's married to Walter Jr. Um, he is also in his 30s I think he has he works as a chauffeur he doesn't like that he is in service um, and he has big dreams of operating like a chain of liquor stores in the Chicago and like Milwaukee area, I think. It seems like it would be maybe lucrative, maybe. Yeah, and he thinks that like his way for like to get out of poverty and make a better life um, for both himself and his family is that he is going to become a like businessman. He's going to be a owner of a business. Um, later in the play, he has dreams of himself like in an office building, like running things. But he needs money to get it started. Uh, And he's also aware that they're probably going to have to grease some palms to, like, get the business going quickly uh, so that he can actually make good on this idea. Uh, Ruth and Walter have a son named Travis who's, like, 10 or so. And he is, like, going to school. Like, he's kind of a blank slate for everyone's, like, future. Um, hopefully he'll be okay. Hopefully we can make a better life for him. He has to sleep in the living room because there's like four people plus him living in this like kind of apartment nonsense. Um, like it's the kind of building where like the bathroom is out in the hallway that's shared between everybody who lives on the floor. Um, a lot of the like kind of comedic drama of the first scene is everyone like trying to sneak into the bathroom while they're having otherwise pretty serious conversations. Mm -hmm. Um, Walter's sister, Benita, uh, is studying to become a doctor. She's in her 20s. She's kind of like the youngest adult in the play. She's the most progressive. She's an atheist, which doesn't sit right by her mom. She is interested in learning more about, like, African heritage and is maybe, like, I think Ruth and Benita probably play to different aspects of Hansberry's own character and experience. Um, but Benita is the one who is the quickest to look around and be like, this isn't the way that things have to be. And also white people are going to mess all of this up for us and, and mm-hmm. have been. Um, 
And then there is Mama Younger, who or, or Lena. She's the matriarch of the family. She's in her 60s. She still works. Uh, and the big thing from the plot for her is her husband, Walter Sr., recently died. He worked in manual labor all his life. He died. And his life insurance is going to pay out. And they're going to get a check for ten grand, which is, is a it, lot um, of money. Yeah, they're going to get the check. It's coming. Oh, they're going to get the check. Okay, yep. I figured that racism would mess it up somehow. Well, just you wait, Andrew. <laughs> um, okay. The, the check is coming in the mail on like Friday. I think the play opens on like a Wednesday or a Thursday. So this is, in the, this is in the 40s, right? Uh, 40s, no later than early 50s. Yeah, are you going to find us how much that would be? Yeah. That would be helpful. Um, it's equivalent to ten thousand dollars in nineteen forty is equivalent to about one hundred seventy five thousand dollars in twenty seventeen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's a life changing amount of money. It's not like permanently life changing, but it's like let's get a house, let's do something. Yes, 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 yes. And let's so do something huge and and significant. Mm-hmm. So before our, yeah, before we even meet Mama on stage, um, we get the sense that like Ruth is dissatisfied with where they live. It's a rat trap that. You know, she's worried about Travis growing up and Travis runs in from off stage at one point is like, I was playing out in the street and all these kids were beating up a rat and it was really sick and the rats all bloody and gross and stuff. And she's like, I can't believe that my son is entertaining himself by beating up rats like we got to get out of here. Yeah, it's it remind it's reminding me a bit of um the early parts of Native Son. Oh the, sure, uh, Richard yeah. Wright book that I that I read because it was also about Chicago in, in the 30s and it's got a lot of similar stuff like like people having to live in really close quarters in really blighted mm-hmm. apartment buildings that nobody else wants and like not being allowed or not being able to get themselves out of their circumstances yes. because yeah because everything is so heavily redlined and segregated and yeah so everybody has like specific goals for this money and that's like kind of the opening arc is like Walter is trying to get Ruth to help him convince Mama to back him in this liquor store play. Mama doesn't like that it's like a liquor store vice business. Um, We know that they need to help Benita pay for medical school and how much money are we going to be able to set aside for that. Um, And then there's the pressure of like, yo, we can't live in this this garbage apartment anymore. Um, And along the way, we meet a couple other characters. We meet George Murchison, who is like an affluent college boy who's courting Benita and kind of represents like wealthy black families that have turned at least in the perception of the other characters in the play have turned their back on like their heritage and where their you know families came from and are just trying to assimilate and play respectability politics and he doesn't like he doesn't really seem to value Benita's you know sense of self um and she doesn't she wants to be able to get ahead on her own merits and she's also sort of dating this guy named Joseph Asagai, who is from Nigeria, um, who very patiently like teaches Benita a little bit about um, where she comes from and, you know, is trying to instill in her an interest to go to Africa with him. Um, there's a scene where he can kind of convinces her to take her hair natural. Um, that was a scene that was actually cut from the original Broadway production. Not because I think it was too controversial, but be- at least according to the notes that like they just didn't like how the hair looked on the actress at the time. And they were just like, well, can't make the scene work. I guess we I guess it's gone. <laughs> I guess this potentially important scene is gone because the designer doesn't like it, which I guess happens. Um, 
And then there's another neighbor named Mrs. Johnson who uh, kind of represents folks who are, you know, scared of progress or um, don't want people to upset the boat in a, in a way. Um, she comes in a little bit later. Um, do you have any raisin stories to share with me, Andrew, as, now that I've mostly gone through the characters in the play? I just like a golden raisin. You like a golden raisin? I feel raisin. like, you know, the default raisin is kind of the, kind of the brown, mm-hmm. like the little brown raisins that come in the red box. Yes, yes. Or in Raisin Bran. Uh-huh. I like a golden raisin. Does it taste different? In my brain, it does. Because <laughs> I dislike almost all raisins, unless they have snuck their way into a food. Well, this I feel like this is a, adjacent to your weird... It's a texture thing. It's completely like no, a texture no thing. no non-chocolate candy thing. Because yes. raisins are nature's candy. Now, you have sent Don't me you know? an image of what looks like some sort of raisin pizza pie. What is, it that? is a, it's a It's called a raisin pie, and it looks disgusting. <laughs> It looks like what if a pecan pie, but raisins instead of pecans. Yo. And I just can't imagine exposing raisins to moisture does not make them more appetizing. Okay. It just makes them look like bad old grapes that are t- <laughs> that got Botox and they're trying to get like their youthful looks back and they can't do it. Okay. <laughs> um Good. Thank you for the raisin update. Please keep me posted if you find any more gross raisins. I think that's all the raisin stuff I'm going to do because, I don't know, maybe this levity is misplaced. <laughs> I think it's it's helping us break up break up what otherwise would be a, a serious discussion. Because um, the, the plan does not go smoothly. The plan for Mama to spend this money, as you rightfully intuited, does not go super smoothly. There's a couple complications. One... Ruth turns out to be pregnant early in the play. Okay. She's not feeling well. They're wondering if she is, you know, going to be okay. And at one point she leaves, goes to a doctor and comes back and says that she has put down a deposit with a woman who will help her get rid of it, which is an interesting specific situation that like obviously reminds us of when the play is set, what is available to her in terms of healthcare. Um, and well, this is, this is a case where I don't think we can, Look at where we are right now no, and say no. that we are we are doing a whole lot better by we especially are not. by by poor people and people of color. So yeah. just keep that in mind. Yeah, oh totally. Um and the play situates her motivation pretty clearly in terms of like the first act where she is concerned about whether or not Travis will get by. She's also not super enthused with Walter Jr. at this point. He is like really bought into this liquor store scheme to the point where he's dissatisfied with everything else in his life if he can't get this so the odds that like if that doesn't work out that their family will work out or feel pretty low right now so she doesn't want to like expand her family she's scared of she's scared of what would happen there um there's the stuff that i talked about with benita's identity where she's wondering who she's gonna marry if anyone she is um, trying to figure out if she wants to go to Africa with this guy Joseph, um, it and that puts her in conflict with both her mother, who's like, "Why are you this like upstart kid?" There's some good like generational disagreements there in terms of like how does a 60 year old woman who has believed this is how we will get by 
deal with her 20 year old daughter who is like, I would rather just throw all of this in the garbage and just maybe just leave. Um, And then there is Walter's plan as I've, as I've talked about. So mama gets the $10,000 check. Everyone's super excited. The check has the right number of zeros. um, And she informs them that she has decided to buy a house in Clybourne park, uh, which is in Southside Chicago in an all white neighborhood which she's which they all when she mentions where it is they're all like mama there it's only white people there there are no black people there and she goes i guess there are going to be some now <laughs> which is a pretty good <laughs> response she has put like 3000 of the 10000 down like as a down payment and the house is cheaper that's the only reason she bought it it's not because she specifically wants to integrate the family into a different neighborhood it's because it was cheaper because people are not being discriminatory with their housing prices like that is the reason given um and i think that is one of the things where you were talking about the new york times review andrew is that the new york times review that you found yeah yeah yeah. um where audiences latched on at least white audiences latched onto it as like oh they they we're trying to assimilate and we're trying to be just the average middle-class Americans like the rest of us. And she's like, no, I bought this house because it was cheaper because they weren't planning to discriminate against black home buyers. Um, and of course it gets bad from there because uh, after she's laid out this plan, they are planning to pack. Walter's not like super enthused because this means that none of the money is going to go to his liquor store business. Right. Um, he knows that mama is going to earmark some of it for Benita's education. Um, and I think there's also a sense that like he is getting passed as the opportunity to be the patriarch of the family. Mm-hmm. Much of the play, there are moments peppered throughout the play where mama asserts herself, um, one scene where she ends up like slapping Benita over an argument about God and everyone, you know, Walter and Beneath in particular are concerned that like mama's making decisions for them. And so he's not super enthused about the house plan at first because she is just kind of skipping right by him uh, after his father passed away. Sure. And she decides, okay, I see Walter, you're not doing well. Here's what I'm going to do. I've put down some of the money on the house. I'm going to give you like $3,500 to invest. And I'm going to give you the rest of the money and you have to put it in a bank for Benita. You have to go deposit it in the bank so that she can use it for school. And you're making the face that <laughs> is someone who has watched It's a Wonderful Life and knows that when you give someone money that they're supposed seen, to keep When safe. you give someone money and say, please do this thing with this money. Uh-huh. I know it's not going to happen. Yep. I know it's not going to happen. Correct. This is just a, this is a, this is a common dramatic thing. Uh huh. Is it's going to get lost or it's going to get spent on magic beans or like yes. it's just not going to it's not going to go the way that that people want it to. It's very magic beansy. Um, and so already we've seen like money in this play, and again I think this is what makes it feel universal to some audiences is like money as agency as like 
It is the currency, literal currency with which you buy social mobility. Um, but it is also what makes it specific in this play is like everyone is operating from a severe disadvantage because they are black. So like the money needs to go farther than it should. They don't have enough of it, et cetera. It's all very precious. Two big complications. The first, we get a visit from Mr. Lindner, Mr. Carl Lindner. And he represents okay. the Neighborhood Association from Clybourne Park. And he's being very nice, Andrew. He says he was elected to come down here so that people, you know, people just don't talk face to face these days. People aren't kind to each other. They don't sit down and actually talk things out. And Ruth. What and, happened to civility? Yep. Um, the newsman, the paperboy, even in TV. And he what? said, that's, isn't that the Full House song? Uh, okay, sure. Whatever happened. Yeah. Yeah. And for a moment, I thought you were trying to do the Family Guy song and you got it. Really oh, bad. gosh. <laughs> um, and in this scene, there's this really interesting dramatic irony where like Benita knows that this is going to break bad before anybody else. And uh, Ruth and Walt and Mama are like, OK, OK, nice white guy. Uh, this is weird, but let's see where this goes. And what does he say? I just want, I want to make sure I get his words right. Yeah, he says, um, we don't try hard enough in this world to understand the other fellow's problems, the other guy's point of view. And Ruth is like, yeah, that's that's totally right. Good job, guy. And he goes, our community is made up of people who've worked hard as the Dickens for years to build up that little community. They're not rich and fancy people, just hardworking, honest people who don't really have much but those little homes and a dream of the kind of community they want to raise their children in. Boy, a lot of coded, coded language in this bad boy. Yeah. The overwhelming majority of our people out there feel that people get along better, take more of a common interest in the life of the community when they share a common background. I want you to believe me when I tell you that race prejudice simply doesn't enter into it. It is uh -huh. a matter of the people of Clybourne Park believing, rightly or wrongly, as I say, that for the happiness of all concerned that our Negro families are happier when they live in their own communities. Uh -huh. And Benita Whiteley, rightly points out that he says he is from the welcoming community committee of Clybourne uh -huh. Park. Uh -huh, uh -huh. So, Doesn't seem very welcoming. No, it does not. I'm just going to point that out. Yeah, it does not. So what they have done, this community of racist white people, have... Uh, well, they're not racist. They just want to hang out with people who are like them yeah. in background. Yeah, that's true. Thank you for, for that correction, Andrew. Um, yeah. They have pooled their money together, the money mm -hmm. that they have, mm -hmm. and said, we will pay you more money to... We will buy this house from you for more than you are planning to buy it for. And... And everyone in the youngers is like, please leave, sir. <laughs> Go away. It sounds <laughs> like sucks. a great deal, though. Like, what's the what's the problem? Well, there's a there's a whole lot of pride to the move. There is uh, this was their dream and they were packing and they were ready to go. Pride factors heavily into like the last part of the of the play in terms sure. of like they're rejecting the money that was born out of Walt Sr.'s flesh. Like, so then follow before we can even deal with the housing problem, um, we get the end of George's failed investment where he was working with dudes named Willie and Bobo to invest the money. Willie and Bobo, you yep. don't invest money with Bobo. Yep. 
No. And Hansberry does a pretty good job early on where, like, she's complaining to Walt uh, Jr. about how he keeps his son up all night, like, sitting in the living room talking to a bunch of idiots. And Walter's like, they're good guys. They have lots of great ideas. Oh, no. No. So oh, no. there was a plan where, of course, Walt Jr. took the full six and a half K, including the school money, gave it to Bobo and Willie, I guess to <sighs> Willie. And Bobo was supposed to get on a train to Milwaukee with Willie with the money to like grease some palms so that they could get the licensing done really quickly. Because uh, otherwise they're going to have to go through the machine and maybe they'll get rejected because they're black investors, right? And sure. Bobo shows up to the house and he's like, Willie never showed. Willie's gone. That's it. Money down the toilet. <sighs> and there's there's a really like chilling line where Walter's like, that was my father's flesh. Like there is a lot to be done with the fact that Walter Sr. is not in this play and like what all of these folks are trying to do with both his legacy and like the literal payment for his life. Well, yeah, because he, cause he is not, but with this payment that they only have because he, he is died, dead. he yes. is kind of a central character. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so then there is like, well, I guess we can't move because we lost a bunch of the money and we lost the way that we were going to help make more money to finally pay off this house after we bought it. And we can't move because they're, they're going to hate us there. Uh, and it like Walter ends up inviting Mr. Lindner back to take up his offer and mama. Yeah, I was going to say how yeah. do at least get a heist out of it and be like, well, okay, we won't move in, but we need more to pay up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is portrayed as like a bad thing that he is doing. Ruth feels unsatisfied by it. She's just kind of lost all respect for him. Um, Benita has been invited to go to Africa and she's strongly considering taking up the offer. And Mama is like, how are you going to explain to your son that you're going to take these white people's money and like back down from this thing that we can do? Um, and that's very that's played very dramatically. They invite Lindner back. And in the moment when he has to get the money or like sign the contract um, because his son Travis is there and mama's kind of poking at him. He decides to reject the offer and they're going to move back there. Okay. Um, which is like this, it's portrayed as this like kind of like character reversal and they're going to make it beneath kind of ends on a question mark. I love that the play actually ends with a bunch of really strong questions for what's going to happen to this family. Cause none of it sounds perfect like very purposefully. Um, and the one scene I alluded to earlier with this woman, Mrs. Johnson, the neighbor who comes in is like, y'all are moving to Clybourne Park. Didn't you read in the paper the black family <laughs> who had their house bombed? Like, mm-hmm. I'm in a month from now, I'm going to read that, uh, you know, people moved to Clybourne Park, bombed, everyone's dead. And it's sort of played as like really gallows humor. Um it was cut from the Broadway production, both for length and, I think, content. And so I think a lot of the initial responses to the play are missing that element of the move and also that element of the ending. Because that scene does a lot to establish that, like, when they go up there, it will be bad. Like, it will not be an easy move for them at all. Uh, and so even though they have, like, made good on this initial promise of their dream... Mm-hmm. Um, the world will not like accept it readily and reward them for it. Okay. 
Um, so yeah, that's, I mean, that's the play. I don't remember when I saw it, if some of these cuts were in it or not. Um, and I can totally see, I think I was talking to you yesterday. Like I can see how an audience that was like pumped for death of a salesman would see this play and be like, Oh, it's just like that. And it doesn't matter that they are black characters. Cause it's just middle-class Americans. Um, right. Like there's universal values. Yeah. There's, there's some shared character values between, um, Walt and Willie Loman and a lot of that kind of mid 20th century, like dudes lost in the capitalism machine kind of stuff. Um, but this is so much more specifically about like these characters experience in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that like from your reading about the play that you don't think I got or questions that you have? No, I feel like you, you covered it pretty, pretty concisely. I, I'd be, this is one I'd be curious to, cause you mentioned even, even in the text getting some like chills when they're talking about, like their father's flesh. I wonder how that plays on a on an actual stage. Because you you said you saw it, right? I did. I did. And I don't. I don't remember. Like, is is there anything that stuck with you from that that reads like better or differently in the in the book that you can talk about or not? I remember the scene where uh, Benita and uh, Mama are discussing God, and that is like it's one of the curtain. There's like six different curtains. Um, in this play because it's a three-act play and each act has at least two scenes and so you get like really strong scene endings and one of them is this scene where they're still wondering what they're going to do whether or not this money is going to work out if and when it comes and Benita is talking about how she's going to like build a life for herself as a doctor and Mama's Mm -hmm. skeptical but she still wants to support her and Mama asks them to like or is basically thanking God for this happening and Benita gets all up in arms that like that's he he doesn't he doesn't pay our bills like we still have to go work why how could you do that like I don't believe in this I don't doesn't explicitly make me mad that you believe in him but like don't make me pray to him for things that I do essentially and it builds to this moment where mama just slaps her in the face and like makes her pray in front of her and then walks out mm-hmm. and Ruth like looks at her and like how are you gonna I don't know why you deal with your mom that way. Like you should know better now (laughs) to like get out of her way. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of stuff that stands out. And I, as a like staging moment, because it's mostly a scene, uh, a play of, you know, people talking and living their lives. And so any, any moment of violence is going to like stick out. But I think that is the starkest generational difference in the play. Um, And there's another, there's another section where like, after Benita gets some of the Nigerian garments from Joseph and is trying them on and Walter comes home kind of drunk and he he is of mixed opinions about that whole situation anyway. He kind of makes fun of her, but he also doesn't like either of the dudes that she's with. Um, he has this sequence where he is like, the both of them are getting into this chant that they're kind of making up on the fly and it's him kind of envisioning himself as an African warrior and the letdown that he is just a chauffeur um, stuff like that plays really well with the theatricality of it. Even though when you're kind of reading it, it is just a chant on a page that is not like, I don't know. It doesn't read as particularly revelatory from the language 
you know? Mm-hmm. It's mostly about the action that that's happening. Um, okay. There is a struck me funny that I found, Andrew, and you tell me if you sound interested in this. Okay, I definitely will do this. When Walter Jr. comes home drunk at one point, Ruth offers to make him some hot milk. Ooh. And she says that when you're this drunk, you need something hot in your belly. Is that a thing? Hot milk? I know I've heard of warm milk being like a sleep aid, right? I guess that's what it is. But when you're when you've got one on, when you've tied one on. When I've when I've gotten a little tipsy. Do you want do you crave a hot thing in your belly? I know I feel like at least not like a hot liquid i think a hot liquid would just make me sweatier yeah that doesn't seem good yeah no yeah i think like i'll eat a pizza i mostly just want salt but that's my own proclivity i suppose (laughs) (laughs) um but i didn't i was like i don't think i ever ever want hot milk least of all when i've had a few few beers or a whiskey or two. Boy, I just want a, a few beers and then I want to have hot milk and then I want to spend an hour in the bathroom and then I want to go to bed. <laughs> Maybe eat some raisins along the way. Ooh. Some delicious yeah. raisins. Delicious golden raisins. That's that's the best one, according to Andrew. If you at home have different raisin opinions, send them in to Overdue Pod. If you have issues that you'd like to be raisin... Send them in to overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up online, social media, twitter.com slash overduepod at facebook.com slash overduepod. You can get a lot of people out there on social media really raising heck this week. Big shout outs to folks this week, including Graham, Stephen, Chris, Sarah, Mary, Kate, James, Caitlin, Erica, Kelly, Grace, who's spreading the gospel about Stop Homer Time. All those, that whole run of episodes is out for the public. Go check them out. Um, go get it. Find it. Enjoy it. Um, it's just great. And shout out to Nell, who listened to our first episode of uh, Hell Boys, a divine comedy podcast. We were talking about what podcasters you would meet in hell. And Nell definitely leveled up a joke by saying, I'm Terry Gross, and this is fresh hell. It's <laughs> so pretty good. Y'all are pretty funny. Pretty Keep good. sharing your jokes with us. Also, if you have a, an, a question for our Q&A, we're recording that. Uh, somewhere around June 20th. So hit us up with any of your questions. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where should they go? They should go to overduepodcast.com. There is where you'll find links to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and our RSS feed. We've also got a list of all the books that we are going to read. We've got old episodes. We've got a new listener page with episodes that we like that are fun if you are trying to get somebody in the show. Um. And we have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Just trying to just raising some funds. For nothing support, in particular. <laughs> to support our art. What are you talking about next week, Andrew? Next week, I am going to talk about Vicious by V.E. Schwab. Whoop, whoop. We are just going to squeeze all the, all the water straight out of that one. It's our, Is it over? This podcast dying on the vine. Get me out of here. <laughs> okay, everybody. Until we talk to you next time, eat some raisins. Try to be happy.
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>